Jeremiah 21 is our text for this evening, the whole chapter. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift up our families in, in the church tonight that are suffering and afflicted with the pain of loss and the preparation for that loss. Pray for uh, Sean and Grace and, and their family, Lord, at the loss of her mother this week. And yet, Lord, I know that, uh, that you have been very gracious in surrounding uh, Margarita. And we pray, Father, for uh, your strength and your comfort and consolation, Lord, to be upon their family this week as they prepare for the services on Thursday and Friday. Pray for Rose and her family as they await uh, these last hours or even days uh, for her dad. And ask, Father, that, Lord, you will just be strength to them and, pr- and, and peace to their hearts, Lord, uh, in, in these times of, uh, of having to wait, Lord, and especially through uh, the suffering that, uh, that he's gone through. We pray for Isaias Rodriguez. We pray, Father, for your blessing of strength and spiritually, Lord, that his eyes will be open to the presence of Jesus. And, Lord, that you indeed would welcome him home at your right time. We ask, Father God, that you... Fill us with your Holy Spirit this evening so that we may come to a greater understanding of your word as we study this passage tonight. Lord, may, may our hearts be open to the moving of your spirit, teaching us, Lord God, correcting us, loving us through it all. For your desire for us is always great and is always for good. We desire, Lord God, to know that goodness and then, Lord, to express that goodness in our lives that you've given us to live and to lead in the love of Christ. So, Father, teach us tonight your, your truths, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Jeremiah 21. Verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous or wonderful works that the king may go away from us. What, what happens to a nation that, that exudes overconfidence in its own powers of political savvy, economic prosperity, and military might, only to find itself dangerously lacking in any dependency whatsoever in the God that established that nation in the first place. What happens to a nation in that condition? 
Many nations today would do well to heed the warnings of Scripture, our own country not excused, which deal with the consequences of such an overconfidence. I think of the words of Daniel, as a matter of fact, the words of Daniel brought to King Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Daniel chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, where it says, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Listen, listen to what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar. This, of course, after all that we're studying tonight in Jeremiah. But, but nonetheless, they shall drive you from men. This is speaking to a king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. You see, that last phrase is really the operative phrase here. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Those are words given to a king. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. Nebuchadnezzar, you had an opportunity. You lived as a vessel of God as you'll see in just a moment, as God's vessel to correct Judah. But you went overboard. And then you went crazy. Crazy about yourself. Crazy about your wealth. Crazy about your wisdom. Crazy about your standing in the world to the extent that you considered yourself God. Now notice where you are, like a wild animal and beast in the field. Brings to mind Proverbs 16, verse 18, that says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. In our own case, we live in a nation that is rapidly moving away from the greatness that was at once acknowledged to be due to God's gracious hand to a, to a nation that would stifle even Christ's name for the sake of academic, cultural, and religious diversity. That's where we are today. There is, shall we say, a tremendous arrogance in that particular attitude while in the midst of great economic chaos. How similar was the picture in Jeremiah's time. You see, kings then and now, rulers of nations then and now, kings and presidents, then and now need to be rebuked, especially when their policies and their decisions are compromising their nations and their people. Thus it was with Judah, a nation whose greatness at one time uh, during the reigns of David, Hezekiah, and Josiah was, was due to their honoring of the Lord. They were great because they honored God. Now they're facing the question as to how they would deal with God's judgment as they face defeat and disgrace, while Babylon camped around the walls of Jerusalem. Let me interject here that verse 21, or I should say chapter 21, is not in a strict chronology. It is not uh, uh, where we find the time here in, in, in chapter 21 is a lot further ahead. 
because of the mention of Zedekiah and because of the mention of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar, they are actually right around the city of Jerusalem at this time. Jeremiah has jumped a little bit in time. Later on we catch up to this in chapter 37. But just for your understanding, Babylon is camped around Jerusalem. And so with that in mind, if you look at verses 1 and 2 again, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur the son of Melchiah. By the way, we met a Pashur in chapter 20. It's not the same one. They have different fathers. So it's a different person. Uh, sent to him Pashur the son of Melchiah and Zephaniah the son of Maaseiah, the priest saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Babylon was up against the walls of Jerusalem. Please inquire of the Lord for us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all His wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Now they come to God. Now they come to the prophet of God. What does God have to say? I mean, God has blessed so many before. God even blessed Jeconiah before this. Uh, we'll see much later. But uh, God blessed Hezekiah. God blessed all these kings. All those wonderful works for His people. Now we come and say, Lord, how about some wonderful works here? <laughs> it's possible that this portion of Jeremiah took place around the year 588. When the Babylonian army was already encamped around the city of Jerusalem, it was around this time that King Zedekiah had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So there was a siege upon Jerusalem for two years. So that siege probably took place from the years 588 to 586 B.C. And it's around this time that King Zedekiah has rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar by not paying tribute to him and by seeking help from Egypt. Two things that he does. First of all, he does not pay his tribute, which, in other words, that would have meant it was his April 15. And he didn't pay his taxes. Now, as I look around here today, I see a lot of relieved faces, I think. Because, you know, I, I was done last night late, but finally got it. Right? Are we, we okay there? You know, nobody's... Alright. Pay your taxes. Zedekiah didn't pay his taxes to Nebuchadnezzar. The other thing he did, though, was he broke an oath. And he sought help from Egypt. Let's read. Uh, go to Second Chronicles. Uh, we need to kind of uh, build up our understanding of where we are at this point in time in Jeremiah. But Second Chronicles chapter 36 Verses 11 through 14. 2 Chronicles 36, 11. I'm talk, I, might, I might sound like I'm slurring a little bit because I bit my tongue today. I didn't even realize it until I got up here to speak and then I, the pain is like throbbing in my mouth. So if I sound really funny, that's probably the reason. Okay? I'm doing my best not to sound that way. Uh, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 14. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. But notice his resume. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He never humbled himself before God's prophet. Then, remember back in verse 1 of our text, 
What are they doing? They're saying, you know, Jeremiah, maybe God will help us out now. All right, so get that in your mind. Verse 13, and he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. Notice, he rebelled against this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Instead of going to God, he went to Egypt. Let's go on. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and defiled the house of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Now, I'd like for you to turn to the prophet Ezekiel. This is after Jeremiah. So go to Ezekiel chapter 17. Again, what we're doing is establishing the situation with Zedekiah, so you'll see what he did or didn't do to put himself in the situation that he's in in our text. So here in Ezekiel 17 verse 11 it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house. Who's the rebellious house? Judah. Say now to the rebellious house. Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them. Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. And he took the king's offspring, made a covenant with him, put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be brought low and not lift itself up, but that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. In other words, you, you, you keep this covenant with me and you're going to be okay. You know, I'll kind of, I'll keep you as king and, and so on, but it's going to be under our rule as, as it were, but you'll still be over your people. But notice verse 15, but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and many people. Will he prosper? Notice, will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? Boy, these are heavy questions, aren't they? Because first of all, we're dealing with, a, with an evil king, and we're dealing with an evil king that is uh, in, uh, subject to another evil king. Yet the Lord, through his prophet, is asking, uh, can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Now there is the prophecy of Zedekiah. He will die in Babylon. Nor will Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company do anything in the war when they heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. Since he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and in fact gave his hand, And still did all these things. He shall not escape. Well, that's a heavy duty judgment upon Zedekiah. So in desperation, you see, Zedekiah turns to Jeremiah the prophet. And he turns to him for help by sending this Pashur, another Pashur, a court officer, along with a priest named Zephaniah. Not the Zephaniah who wrote the the book in the scriptures, Zephaniah, a different one. And they send him to Jeremiah to see if the Lord would grant him guidance. The king was obviously hoping for the Lord to miraculously deliver them from the awaiting Babylonian army as he had brought deliverance to Hezekiah from the Assyrians. Oh, those were wonderful works. Lord. How about some wonderful works for us? However, Jeremiah responded. He responded with ominous declarations to the king the people, and to the house of David. 
That's, that's your outline for this chapter. The proclamations and declarations to the king, the people, and the house of David. It begins with these ominous declarations to the king. Consider, if you will, Jeremiah 21, verses 3 through 7. It says, Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands. Now you understand, he's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to Judah. And he's saying to them, I'm going to turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans, who besiege you outside the walls. Again, the Chaldeans are really the Babylonians. That's just another name for them. The Chaldeans. Who beseech you outside the walls. And I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm, outstretched arm, I'm sorry, outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. Now take note of verse 5 there for just a minute. Outstretched hand, strong arm, but how? In anger, fury, and wrath. That's interesting when we talk about the Lord that way. He's actually talking about himself. And that against his people. Not about enemies, not about the heathen, not about the pagan, against his own people. Why? Because they had become heathen, pagan in their ways. Then he goes on and he says in verse 6, I will strike the inhabitants of this city, what city? Jerusalem, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city, from the pestilence and the sword and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. So those who would run away from Jerusalem, if they left and got to get away from Babylon, they would run into other people. Edomites probably. All enemies of Israel. And then he says, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Now the message was clear and it was straightforward. Isn't that the longest verse of scripture you've ever seen? I was just looking at the other. Man, that's long. And it's still not even the longest verse of scripture. But the message was clear and it was very, it was straightforward. Neither the king nor his people would escape the coming judgment. That's the message. All along we've been saying, judgment's coming, repent. But God always told Jeremiah, they're not going to repent. Judgment's coming, repent. They're not going to repent. Judgment's here. And guess what? The king doesn't repent. The people don't repent. And they don't escape the coming judgment. Following the example of the evil kings who ruled before him, Zedekiah lived a wicked life. Instead of setting a righteous example for the people, he and his predecessors were stumbling blocks to the people. They led the people down the road of sin and shame. Consequently, they would face God's hand of judgment. Judah's military strength would be ineffective against the Chaldean army. Well, this was the army that was going across all of of, of the northern regions before it swooped down into, into Israel. 
And so a standing army in Jerusalem, what were they going to depend upon? Well, they were going to depend upon their walls. Our walls will take care of us. This is a strong city. Hmm? Verse 5 reveals a powerful irony. A powerful irony. Because in the past, God's mighty outstretched hand and strong arm had worked for His people, right? His outstretched hand and, and, and mighty arm worked for His people. Take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 34 and uh, 35. Or did God ever try to go and take for Himself a nation from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is none other besides Him. They had already been delivered from, from the bondage in Egypt. By what? By His outstretched arm. And his mighty hand. Do you notice it's kind of changed around? His outstretched hand and mighty arm in Jeremiah. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 15, it says, And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. And, there, and therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 26, verse 8, So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. That was, here's the the irony. That was then. What's now? Now he was working against them because the nation turned against their God. So now it's the outstretched hand working against them and a mighty arm in bringing judgment upon his people. And it brings to mind this character of God. You know, God is always the same. He never changes. We, we want to always believe, you know, that God is, is just so full of mercy and grace and love. And He is. And He is. That He's full of wisdom and, and understanding. And He is. But we never should forget that God is a holy God, that God is a righteous God, and God is a just God. We can never separate that from God. And so as we see him work with his people as he's doing, he's not outside of his character in dealing with the sins of his people. Take, for instance, the idea that comes from Psalm 18, verses 25 through 27. Notice what God says, you know... What the psalmist is saying about the Lord. He says, with the merciful you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. With the pure you will show yourself pure. And with the devious you will show yourself shrewd. So in every situation, God is going to show himself the way he has to be in dealing with mercy and in dealing with judgment. In dealing with grace and in dealing with justice. God is a God of justice. And, and what we're going to find out here in just a little bit is that the kings that he raises up for his people have to take on those same uh, characteristics. So they have to be kings of righteousness and justice. But this group of kings were not. So to deal with the devious, he must be shrewd and would be. And it even seems strange that in verse 5 we see those words such as anger and fury and great wrath attributed to the Lord. 
But when you compare the covenant, see, here's what you have to understand. You have to go back to the covenant made with the children of Israel in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, and you realize they were aware of the terms with him. They were aware of the terms. This is no big surprise. God, I thought you were a good God. You see, that's where some people are today. They want God to be a certain way and, and, and always act in a way that, that would reflect their understanding of God. When God is saying, I've always told you what I am. I am a holy, holy, holy God. That's the only time we see any, any attribute of God mentioned three times together. Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We would love it to be, you know, always love, love, love. That's a Beatles song. Or mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. God is all of that. But more than anything, He is holy, holy, holy. And, and, and so, He has made it clear to them. Shall we see how He made it clear to them? Go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Leviticus 26, verses 27 and 28. In verse 27 of Leviticus 26, And after all this, if you do not obey me, notice, he's making it real clear to the children of Israel, which is what they are to pass on to their children and to the children's children, and so on and so forth. And after all of this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. So God made it clear in His covenant with them. Go contrary to me, I'll have to become furious with you. I don't want to. I want to do what? I want to walk with you and love you and be merciful to you and be your strength for you, be your wisdom for you. I want to be your covering. I want to be your God. I want to be your light. I want to be everything to you. Just obey me. Deuteronomy 29, verse 23. The whole land, he says, is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in His anger and His wrath. You see, there are times when God shows a certain anger. It is, it, it is an anger that only He, uh, because of His foreknowledge, because of His wisdom, because of His knowing the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning, shows this in such a way that we can't fully understand it, but we know that it's done for a reason. We know that that, that wrath and that anger and, 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 and that fury come because His Word has been violated by people who know better. By people that He said, I loved you. He says, I didn't choose you because you were stronger than any other nation, but because I loved you. And then Deuteronomy 29, verse 28, same chapter, And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation, and cast them into another land as it is this day. So how often, how often did the Lord have to warn His people that their disobedience would provoke his anger and in effect force him to bring judgment to the land, but the leaders would pay no attention with the Lord or to the Lord. How many times? How often did the Lord have to warn them? 
And at the same time, the leaders were not paying attention whatsoever to God. I mean, this warning could be contemporary as well. It, it could be contemporary as well, especially to those who would prefer dead idols to the living God. And power politics to simple faith in God's Word. I mean, what else did, what else did Jeremiah pronounce? Let's look at verses 6 and 7 again. He says, I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword of the fa- and the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. And he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. Here we are given a fourfold description of the coming judgment. Here's a four, fourfold description of the coming judgment. First of all, many of the people and livestock would die from the terrible plague that resulted from the long Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. Again, understand, Babylon is surrounding the city of Jerusalem. People could not come in and out. They began to run out of food. They began to, you know, the disease began to spread. Famine began to spread. In two years' time, uh, this was the condition of the city of Jerusalem. And that for more than two years. It was about 30 months that that siege took place. Secondly, many would die in battle. And others would die due to the famine that would follow the siege. That's what we see at the beginning of verse 7. And then thirdly, many of the survivors, including Zedekiah himself and his royal officials, they would be captured by the Babylonians, and many of them would later be executed as criminals. And even though Zedekiah was not executed, Nebuchadnezzar had him blinded and exiled him to Babylon where he eventually died. He blinded him. 2 Kings 25, verses 6 and 7. So they took the king... And brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they pronounced judgment on him. And then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Put out the eyes of Zedekiah. Bound him with bronze fetters. And took him to Babylon. You understand what he did? What was done to him? The Babylonians took Zedekiah the king of Judah. And they killed his sons before his eyes. And then they took his eyes out. You know why? That's the last thing he's going to see. The last thing he'll see forever. In his mind's eye. That's pretty cruel, isn't it? That is cruel. The Babylonians were cruel people. The Babylonians never had Nebuchadnezzar get up and say to people, We don't torture people. They didn't have Geneva Conventions, UN this or UN that. They took care of business, you see. By the way, God took care of business with them because of it. But that's much later. Fourthly, few of the people would be spared or shown mercy or compassion. As it says at the end, you shall not spare them or have pity or, or mercy. That's what was happening. Secondly, 
there's another pronouncement. The first pronouncement was to the kings. The next pronouncement was the obvious pronouncement to the people. In Jeremiah 21, verses 8 through 10, as we move on, it says, Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now stop there for a minute and think about the, think about the pronouncement. Now you shall say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. There's a choice here. Now remember, the kings, the kings of Judah... In particular, Zedekiah and his rulers and his leaders have led the people astray. They're supposed to be the shepherds of the people. They're supposed to be the ones to lead the people to God, to trust in God, to believe in God, to, 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 to believe in his word, to honor his word, to honor him in worship. These are the, the kings were supposed to do that. Israel and Judah were not supposed to be secular societies. So the kings and the pronouncements that we saw in verses 1 through 7 don't have this choice. You see the difference? They've led the people astray. But notice what God does. He still gives them a choice. He says, I said before you the way of life and the way of death. But notice, it isn't life as if to say you're going to escape the problem. You're not going to escape the problem because you yourselves could have walked away from the worship of idols. You could have realized that there was a God and is a God and not done these things. But you've done them willfully. Okay, so I'm not adding to the scriptures. I'm just kind of filling in here the gaps so you'll understand what's happening. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I said before you the way of life and the way of death. He who remains in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. That's the way of death. But he who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you. Now, that sounds somewhat traitorous, doesn't it? But hold that, hold that thought. He who goes out and defects to the Chaldeans who besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be as a prize to him. For I have set my face against this city for adversity, not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall burn it with fire. Now you can choose death and just stay here and, 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 and you're just going to die. You give yourself up to the Babylonians. So This is something that God told Jeremiah to tell them. And you think, this sounds traitorous. Stop for a moment and think. God knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He realizes and knows. God doesn't have to realize anything. He knows. That there has to be a seed continuing on. God's people are not going to be wiped out completely. So as for the king, there was certainly no hope. But for the people, hope was offered to them if they would just completely surrender to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you jump forward to Jeremiah 38, and again, remember that we, you're not chronologically in place right now in verse 20, in chapter 21, but jump forward to Jeremiah 28, uh, 38, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 38, verses 17 and 18, where it says, Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you surely surrender to the king of Babylon's princes, then your soul shall live. This city shall not be burned with fire. And you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the king 
of Babylon's princes, and this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans. They shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. And now, of course, you would say, well, then, then it sounds like he's giving him the option. But God already knows his heart is set. So he's already said in his, in, in his ways. And then what is he going to do? He's not going to honor the oath that he was given by Nebuchadnezzar, number one. The other thing was that he sends ambassadors to Egypt. Of course, that messes everything up for him. Either way, consider this, that two ways were set before them by the Lord. Two ways were set before them by the Lord. The way of life and the way of death. A choice that probably brought to their remembrance the words of the covenant. Remember, going back to the covenant that was made for them already, it was already in there about this choice. Listen, Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 to 28. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. What is that? A choice between life and death. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today, to go after other gods which you have not known. Jump over to Deuteronomy 30, and notice again what God says in verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Notice the choices. Life and good, or death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. God says, obey me, I'll bless you. That's pretty simple, right? What's the, uh, what's the old adage? Easier said than done. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away so that you do not hear or are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. Now, God is pointing all the way down to Jeremiah's time. From Moses' time all the way to Jeremiah's time. He says, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, you're drawn away, like by the kings, and worship other gods and serve them, idol worship. I announce to you today, notice, today, that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. And then he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have said before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, I should have highlighted this about this big. Therefore, choose life. Choose life. God is saying, for your good, choose life. That both you and your descendants may live. Stop for a moment before we go on and think about this. We've heard it from this pulpit before. God is a God of life, not a God of death. The enemy is all about death. But God is a God of life. What does He promise to us who believe in Him? Jesus said in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies physically, 
will live forever. He who believes in me. Choose life. That both you and your descendants may live. Verse 20. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey His voice. And that you may cling to Him. Ah, I tell you what. I think we miss so much of what blessing God wants to give us. And shower upon us. Because we, we, we fail to, to just cling to Him. We have to be very careful, folks, not to cling to the things of this life. And there are plenty of things in this life. We could all consider them necessity. There's some necessities, you know, that we, that we need on a daily basis or uh, as it goes. But, but there are a lot of things that we cling to that aren't necessities. But some people cling to those things as if everything depended upon those things. God doesn't deal with things. God deals with life. And I, I, I would encourage you to think about what it means to cling to God. I think of some beautiful pictures in the scriptures, especially about Jesus. When Jesus would gather and the children would run to him and they'd cling to him and they'd get on him, you know. I can picture some of them climbing on his back, others on his lap, but just wanting to be next to him. Isn't that what children love to do with you as parents when they're that little and didn't Jesus say the kingdom of God is like little children? That's what the kingdom's all about. I think of that woman that had that flow of blood for years and years, 12 years. How she pushed her way to a, to a place where she could just cling to the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus said, who touched me? And the disciples are saying like, man, everybody's touching you. The point was that virtue had left him to this woman to heal her. But if anything, the greatest virtue that Jesus ever gave forth was his love. And he loved this woman to health and to salvation. Because she wanted to do one thing, and that was cling to the hem of his garment, which was to take hold of him. Choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. You see, with the Lord we must decide one way or the other. With the Lord we must decide one way or the other. It isn't possible finding neutral ground with God. 
I don't know where people get the idea that they can put one foot in the world and one foot in the, in the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, you, cannot, you can't love the Lord and you can't love mammon at the same time. One has to be your master. You know that even in the church, the choice has to be made. Will you be cold or hot and not lukewarm? I think the words of Jesus in Revelation 3 to the church of Laodicea, he says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I, w- I could wish you were cold or hot. At least you're saying something by saying I'm cold or I'm hot. But if you're lukewarm, he says, so then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. A choice. Choose life. Too many people are choosing death today. Some people are fascinated by death. Or they're fascinated by people who, pre, who, who sing about death or preach about death or, or, or talk about death or, or, you know, we see it in, I mean, we can see it in all divisions of, of culture and society today, especially in the young, in younger uh, generations, you know, what they wear, what they, how they wear, what they do, you know. I mean, it's, 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 it's a fascination with, with the wrong side that the Lord said, look, choose either life or choose death. But the decision is going to be made one day. So choose life. Well, enough with that for now, but, but the pronouncement now in verses 8 through 10, they got Jeremiah in a lot of trouble. The pronouncement there in, in, in verses 8 through 10, when he, when, he, when he says, listen, there's the way of life and the way of death. He says, if, if you, you want to die, just stay in the city. But if you, if you go out to the Chaldeans and surrender to them, you know, you, you, at least you'll stay alive. It gets them in a lot of trouble, uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Because the people would think that he sided with the Babylonians and that he was a traitor for doing so. And this would eventually lead, by the way, to his arrest and imprisonment during the last days before the city of Jerusalem fell. And you can read about that in chapters 37 38 of Jeremiah. He gets arrested because of this. Because they believe him to be a traitor. And of course we know that some people accepted his counsel as coming from the Lord and they surrendered to the Babylonians. There was still judgment to suffer though. They would still have to go to Babylon. They would still be kicked out of the land. And even those who entered into Babylon had lost every every possession they owned. They weren't going over there to, you know, this was not a lateral move here. This was not moving from Jeremiah, I should say, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Kind of like, you know, I'll just, I'll just back up and leave, you know. They were going into heavy bondage. They were going to be slaves. So God offers them the opportunity to choose life. The third proclamation is an oracle that is preached to the house of David. Verses 11 through 14. 
the last section of this chapter. It says, And concerning the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like fire and burn, so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? That's, that's saying something very arrogantly. That's like saying, who can knock down these walls? Who can get in here? Nobody's going to be able to get in here. But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. You see, God's word demanded that the king execute justice throughout the nation by rescuing the victims of oppressors and criminals. And if the king failed to rule in justice, God's wrath would fall upon him. God himself was determined to defend the victims of unrighteousness and to pour out his wrath like unquenchable fire on evil kings. The point is that all the kings stood accountable before God. Far more accountable than the individual citizens of the nation. God always holds leaders more accountable because they are given far more responsibility. And I stand up here telling you that Burdened by that. I can't stand up here and say, you know. I've always said I like big pulpits because you guys don't get to see my knees shaking every time I get up here. Because they shake because I don't want to say anything that goes against God's word in any way. Listen to James chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. James chapter 3 in the New Testament. He says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Do you notice that he said we? (laughs) Knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. He puts himself right there. He knows God's called him. God's anointed him. God's blessed him so he can do this. And he says, Don't become that which God hasn't called you to do. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn the whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is like a, uh, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Well, how, how true that has become even in our day and time when, when these massive fires in California or in Australia or wherever, they all started by one spark, one match, by an arson, let's say, or just somebody didn't know how to take care of a fire. But all of a sudden, acres, hundreds, if not thousands of acres burn because of one little spark. The tongue is what James is talking about. It's a little member who boasts great things. A lot of big fires happen. That's why we have to be careful if God calls us into a time or into a ministry of of teaching. 
Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus said this, But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of strife shall be beaten with few. Uh, just go on to the next thought. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. For whom much is given, to whom much is given, for him much will be required. If you're given much to do for the Lord, you're required of that, of the Lord. So the responsibility of the royal house of David was clear. Namely, to administer justice, to show mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6 eight. Interestingly enough, David was a king that did those things. And the kings of Israel initially did not ride or, 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 or ride on big, white, beautiful horses. They rode, they rode on, a, on, a, on the foal of a donkey to show their humility before God. Because you see, all the other nations, you know, all the kings, you know, wore all the splendorous magnificence uh, in their clothing and their armor. And what they rode on, they always had the best. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, the colt of a donkey. And people began to say, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Humility. Administer justice. In fact, Zedekiah's name, which had been changed by Nebuchadnezzar from Mataniah, which literally means gift from God, Now is Zedekiah, which means the Lord is righteous. Righteousness includes the thought of justice. To rule righteously is to rule justly. So another irony is the name of Zedekiah, who did not rule justly. So the words are mentioned to show that the house, and especially Zedekiah, had failed in what the kings were called to do. They had taken the assurance of God's presence and as an occasion of pride in their own strength. And this is what would bring them down. Lastly, in verses 13 and 14. God says, Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, says the Lord, who say, Who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our dwellings? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in its forest, and it shall devour all things around it. Although they were not held as accountable as their kings for the fate of the nation, the citizens of Jerusalem were responsible for their own behavior. Consequently, they were doomed because of their self-reliance and their self-sufficiency. They didn't trust God, in other words. Instead, they trusted the defense, uh, defensive measures of, of the capital. 
Jerusalem sat on a hill surrounded by valleys on three sides. Its strategic location in the massive wall that surrounded the city made the people feel secure and as, as though the city were impregnable and, and, and uh, invincible. Their confidence was in the city, but it wasn't in the Lord. Because of their unbelief and their wicked lifestyle, the Lord was going to consume them with the fire of His judgment. So we're taken then out of the chronology of chapter 20 and moved quite a bit ahead to where we now see Babylon surrounding them in a siege. And he brings this to mind for this reason. I told you I warned you for 40 years. For 40 years. And then for 30 years. 20 years. 10 years. And now here we are. And God told God said as he, God didn't lie to me. They won't listen. They won't do. I think of the words of Paul in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that for a moment. If God is for us, who can be against us? What about the converse? What about the reverse of that thought? Isn't it equally true that if God is against any people, nothing or no one will be able to protect them? So from one situation, if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can be against us if God is for us. But if God is against us, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, I've heard it said, you've probably heard it too, God is on your side. God is on your side. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you something. Because I think the important thought to convey is not God is on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? That's what we need to understand. Are you on God's side? I mean, I can make a lot of people feel good every weekend. If I tell you that, God's on your side. God's on your side. I tell you what, He's not on your side if you're living in sin. God's not on your side if, 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 if you choose to act one way in church and then go out and, and then just live a totally different life outside of the church. I, I honestly want God on your side too. But we need to be on God's side. We need to be on His side, folks. Sounds good, but we forget the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and understanding of what God does in this life for the sake of His kingdom. So it's a, it's a, it's a very heavy duty 
chapter. It's a very small chapter. And yet in, in the midst of all of this, I mean, we're thinking, whoa, this is pretty heavy. Well, yeah, it's all heavy because all along, all of these warnings have been going out. And who's been listening? And then Jeremiah himself is, is, is struggling. He says, Lord, why are you letting this happen here? You know, I go tell them and then they don't listen and you're going to wipe them out. But Lord... But you see, Jeremiah is finally getting it, isn't he? They've heard. But their response is, we're okay. Our prophets told us that God's on our side. Isn't that the, the message they were getting? Oh, peace, we're okay. Go ahead and go to the temple. See, remember this. We've gone through this in Jeremiah. Go to the temple, offer your sacrifices, do your Jewish thing, and then when the, when the day's done, go to your high place and worship your idols. Some people would think, oh, that's wonderful. You've got the best of both worlds. That's what people are trying to do today. You know, live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Or those who say, let's embrace every religion, because if we embrace every religion, how can we go wrong? But God's Word says, I alone am God, there is no other. And no one comes to me except through Jesus, my Son. And I think we need to take heed to the truth that has been given to us in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So there it is. All right, no more driving home. We drove home already. Now you guys got to drive home. <laughs> Safely of home. Let's pray.